I, I mean, again, when I was a kid, that's what I used to do, too. I used to write these little books and sell them to my family for <laughs> candy money. <laughs> How much would you get? Five cents. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Big Switch, the show where we find out why people quit things and what they're doing now. Today, we have Professor Robin Hemley on the show, a writer-in-residence and professor in the humanities at Yale and U.S. College here in Singapore. His career has always been in writing, but we wanted to bring him on because we felt that his journey as a writer would be compelling for aspiring creatives. Today, we're going to be talking about Professor Robin Hemley's experience working at colleges in the United States and now shifting recently to his post at, here at Yale and U.S. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Logan. So let's go all the way back in your childhood. What <laughs> would you say, what's the first book? I think everyone has a book they remember reading first. Do you remember yours? Um, well, I was read to a lot by my mother in particular, so I, I, I'm sure I was read books that, you know, I've, I've forgotten, but, uh, as far as books that, uh, I remember reading early on, um, I loved the Narnia series, that was, that was great, um, I mean, even though it's this Catholic series and I'm Jewish, uh, <laughs> it's still, you know, I thought it was great. You know, I, I loved it. I, and, uh, I, you know, I read the Oz books. Um, and then when I was about 14 or so, I got into um, a kind of contest with uh, another kid in my school about which book we would read for book report that would be really difficult because we were both show-offs. And so for me, it was Kafka's The Trial, and for him, it was War and Peace. He was just doing it completely by sort of doorstop uh, size. Um, but, you know, I, I, but that sort of, it, it both um, changed my notion of reading and writing and also sort of fed into my early love of fantasy. And this was when you were 14? Yeah, when I was 14. So who ended up winning? Who got the better grade on the book report? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, once I got into the book, I kind of, I think, I kind of forgot about the contest and just th said, you know, this is a great book. This is really cool. And, um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure he won just because sheer length. Right. <laughs> if he was telling the truth, if he read How it long all. is it? I can't, I can't recall. Oh, War and Peace? Yes. Uh, I have no idea. I can't recall myself. Uh, so if you had to recommend a book that you think people should read before they're 21, before they, you know, enter college or graduate from college, what would you recommend? Wow. Uh, another difficult one, but uh, <laughs> because it's always hard to uh, to think of one book mm -hmm. because it depends who you are and right. where you are. A, a list of books then. A the, list. The, be the best five. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I have trouble with best because, again, it's one of those things where your mind goes blank and you say, have I ever read a book? Mm -hmm. You know, when someone asks you your best five. I would say, um, you know, I was really into, I'll just also say that I was really into things like comics and um, and things like that and, and sci-fi and uh, speculative fiction as well. And I think that really uh, helped me as well. They weren't classics. They weren't books that you'd uh, you wouldn't say Archie comic books is uh, <laughs> is is something someone has to read. Certainly not. In fact, I don't think so at all. But even something like that got me into the habit of of, of reading. But I I come from a, a family of writers, so it was really easy for me to sort of fall into writing. But books that I think people should read, um, I actually think people should read outside of um, what their cultural milieu is. That is, I think they should um, not read books that 
that just sort of reinforce their worldview, books about people they know, but books about people they don't know. So if someone's in America, they should read uh, a novelist in China or Indonesia in translation. You know, I mean, that's asking a lot. But to me, the whole one of the points of reading is to get outside of your your skin. You know, get outside of who you are and and see a different uh, point of view. A different. It's a great way to travel, as it were. So when I was younger, I was always interested in writers from, say, Eastern Europe, South America, um, and I just I was always interested and Japanese writers too. I mean, when I was seventeen, I was an exchange student in Osaka, Japan. And um, I, so I start reading Japanese literature. I was reading Yukio Mishima, Kobo Abe, Kawabata, Tanazaki, all these people who really took me outside of uh, my comfort zone, as it were. And that happened because I, had a, I was at a small boarding school in Tennessee called St. Andrews, and my roommate was Japanese. And he then subsequently became my host brother in um, Japan. So he introduced me to all the, this Japanese literature. And the, the book, this famous Japanese book called The Makioka Sisters by Junichiro Tanizaki, um, is a book that's sort of the Japanese equivalent of the American book Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's sort of a pre-World War II book. And it was so cool for me as a 17-year-old to read this book that was set in Osaka in pre-war Japan and walk the streets of, of Osaka, you know, that very day and sort of imagine myself not only in this place that was initially foreign to me, but in a different time. So for me, it's not about recommending a particular book. It's about maybe having a certain frame of mind, which is, a kind of intellectual curiosity and going outside of your sort of everyday life. So given this, uh, what body of literature did you end up studying uh, once you got to university? So I was initially an Asian studies major, um, and I studied uh, Asian poetry from the Dang dynasty forward. And then I switched to comparative literature and I studied, uh, again, some world literatures um, from South America and other places. And so um, I actually was not your typical English major, even though I've taught in English departments. So uh, my, my knowledge of English and even American literature, 19th century American literature, was really poor for a long time. I had to sort of teach myself. So I mean, I remember I, classics like Wuthering Heights or whatever, I'd, I'd read, you know, I read maybe 15 years ago because I hadn't read them in college. Right. So speaking about that, how long have you been uh, teaching literature for? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> longer than I'd like to say. Um, but I've been teaching mostly writing. Uh, mm -hmm. I do teach the occasional literature mm -hmm. course, but as a writer of fiction and nonfiction, uh, I teach craft courses more often. Mm -hmm. But I've been teaching for about, you know, about 30 years now. Wow. Yeah. It's so a long I've only time. been alive for 20 years. Yeah. Don't, so, don't uh, remind me. So 10 years before <laughs> I was born, you're already teaching. Okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we, have a, true. we have a lot to discuss and we have a lot to get through. Uh, so can you tell us when was the first time, you know, you got a position uh, teaching writing? How did you get that position? What were you doing up until then? 
you know, how did you convince someone to basically let you be the teacher instead of the student? So uh, from my undergraduate uh, days at Indiana University, I went to the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop, uh, got my fiction degree, uh, and then I went moved to Chicago where I knew virtually no one. Um, I got a nine-to-five job and worked there for a year and a half until I was able to get a grant for my writing from the Illinois Arts Council, which allowed me, to my mother's dismay, to quit my nine-to-five job. What was the nine-to-five job? It was working as a, a mailing clerk in a ma- at a magazine. You know, it was terrible. I mean, it was not terrible. It was great because it was it allowed me to write on the job, <laughs> and I wrote my first book on the job, uh, and and they you know they were pretty nice to me, so I was fine with that. But then I quit and uh, got a part-time job through some friends I had made in the meantime at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, which was wonderful. And then I got a fellowship to just do my writing at a place called the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And for seven months, I just lived and wrote. And it was, you know, bliss in that way. Also, it was a lot of pressure, too, because I was in my 20s and I had a, you know, felt I had a lot to prove. And, and uh, I, I was still, in many ways, uh, learning to, to write. Uh, and so... It was it was great, but then I apply. I needed to go somewhere from there, so I applied for various jobs, got some interviews, and um, finally, I'd say May of that year, I was uh, I was invited for an on-campus interview in North Carolina at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and was sort of amazingly offered the job. But I remember there was an inside candidate who was sort of a shoe-in for the job, and somehow I beat this person out. But as punishment, they gave me an extra class my first semester. <laughs> so I had to teach four classes that semester, and it was, it was and the worst schedule. You know, I, <laughs> it, I, my classes started at 8, and I think my last class was at 5, so I was just dead tired, but I got through it. And uh, it, I was grateful for the job, too. Uh, so what was that writing project you were working on during those seven months? I was working on my first collection of stories, which came out um, from a, a press called Atlantic Monthly Press at the time. It's now Grove Atlantic. Uh, and it was a, uh, I'd written some of these stories in graduate school, and then uh, I wrote some more in Provincetown. And, you know, I, I was able to hit a chord, I guess, with a publisher and, and get an editor. It was really ex- an exciting time in my life, you know, my first book. And it was reviewed well in the New York Times. And there were, it was just, it was really sort of a heady experience for me. But I spent probably four or five years working on those stories and getting, and getting rid of some that really didn't fit. Uh, but that one, that that book, uh, yeah, it was a culmination of about five years. Right. So going back to your teaching, um, so you taught for, you said, you're, you've been teaching for about 30 years. That's right. Uh, so you were teaching back in the States then for 25, 26, 27 years approximately? 25. 25 years. So over back in, in, in America, um, are there kind of memorable assignments you remember reading you know, things that came out of left field, any particularly notable, you know, things that happened to you while you're teaching any courses? Well, I taught in various different schools. I 
started out at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and then I went to Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Um, and then I went to um, the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, uh, and then the University of Iowa. And at Iowa, uh, I directed the graduate program, the nonfiction writing program, uh, which is the number one nonfiction program uh, in the country. And that was really exciting because I taught a lot of students who, you know, have gone on to become uh, really, you know, well-known writers. And just the level of, of engagement they had with the writing process was really rewarding. I'd say the same was true at the University of Utah. I taught in the Ph.D. program there, and a lot of the students have gone on to do great things, too. I mean, that's not in any way saying anything about Western uh, or uh, UNC Charlotte, because they were both really good experiences, too. Um, but the number of students who were going to go on to become writers was smaller because I taught a, a larger cross-section, people who weren't self-identifying um, as writers. Um, I'd say, in some ways, teaching at Yale and U.S. has been comparable to teaching at Iowa, but with undergraduates, and not just... Um, not just writers, but uh, one of the things I've loved about teaching here, and I know the students, but not necessarily your listeners, are sick of hearing this, but there's a kind of engagement and intellectual curiosity and really brilliance that, that everyone who teaches here, I think, universally admires in the students. So it's really an engaging environment. Um, there are no particular... Uh, moments, I mean, there are many, many particular mm -hmm. moments that come to mind, but too many would would be here right. for hours. So before you knew it would be this amazing, Yeah. Uh, what made you accept the offer to come over here to Yale and U.S.? Yeah, well, I, I thought that it was an exciting project to be the first liberal arts college in Singapore. Um, as America is getting so has been so enamored with STEM education, I felt that there's something being lost in the idea. I mean, I, I have nothing against STEM, but I think there's more to education than just learning about science, math, technology. And the liberal arts is something that I believe in. So I also have had a long association with, uh, with Asia. You know, I, I, from my time as a an exchange student when I was 17 onwards, and I've spent all, I found myself doing a lot of travel back and forth between Iowa City and this whole region, Hong Kong, Australia, Singapore, and it was getting a little ridiculous. I was, I was traveling so much, so when I saw this opening, I thought, well, I think I'll, I'm in for an adventure. So it was, it was, a, it was the right thing to do at the time. Right. So what major differences do you see in writing in terms of its focus or genre between students who teach here at Yale and U.S. and students back at the Iowa Writers' Center? Well, at Iowa, in the nonfiction writing program, of course, there were graduate students. So the, the, there was a kind of level of experience and expertise that's not necessarily here just because it's a different level of, of, uh, of education. Um, but... The students here are really engaged and really hardworking, and there's a lot of there are a lot of wonderful writers as well who I think 
are, you know, if they choose, will go on to graduate school and to become writers and, and so on. Um, so it's just, a, it's just a sort of different, it's a matter of experience, not a matter of, say, talent, which is not a word I use a lot anyway, because I tend to think that talent is more persistence than native ability. So let's say uh, you're a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old who wants to go into writing, but your parents say, no, uh, we want you to study something more, quote-unquote, practical, be it something in STEM, business, whatever. What would you say to parents or to teenagers that would help them convince their parents that this is something that they can pursue? <laughs> well, I could get in trouble with that, but I would say um, that the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, that there, are plenty, there have been famous doctors and lawyers who have also been great writers. Um, I can understand a parent's... Uh, worry that a son or daughter going into the arts might have an insecure financial future. And so that's usually why, in part, why they say, oh, just do it as a hobby. But there are people who are driven no matter what and who will find their own way no matter what their parents want them to do. I mean, I know plenty of people who were in law school or were in medical school because their parents sort of said, you have to do this. And then they just had a kind of, let's say, awakening in medical school or whatever and said, you know, this is not me. I'm not going to do this. And they, they're, obviously they're going to be difficult conversations. It doesn't always have to be that way. As I said, there have been plenty of writers who've done more than one thing. And you don't have to go into, say, academia to be a writer. Uh, but it's one of those things where there are very, very few writers who make a living off of writing. Um, it can be done, but it's very hard. I did it for a while in Chicago uh, and as a freelancer. And while I was successful at making a living, it was real hand-to-mouth. Mm -hmm. So you really, really have to be dedicated to, to do that. But I would say that one of the things... Uh, younger writers should do is find a community of writers um, to s support, you know, support yourself uh, and to trade work. I think that's always important, that sense of community, especially for such an isolated undertaking. When I moved to Chicago, one of the first things I did was volunteer uh, at a literary magazine. So I would start to meet people in the community who were also writers. And I got a web of friendships out of that and and it also helped sustain me uh, but as far as convincing one's parents that you shouldn't be you know going to stem or something like that well you know it's always sort of good luck I mean that's <laughs> that's something that that you have to negotiate with your parents right so can you tell us a little bit about the pro book you're working on right now I'm actually working on three books right now. All um, of them. Well, I mean, I, I don't like to talk too much about what I'm what I'm working on at the moment is sort of a jinx, you know. But right. I'm working. I'll tell you what broadly what I'm working. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a novel, which I'm halfway done with. I'm working on a new collection of stories, which have a theme, and I'm working on a nonfiction book, which is part sort of travel slash memoir slash um, 
uh, cultural, political meditation. <laughs> and what are you reading right now? Oh, right now, mostly student papers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, let's see, what am I reading right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm 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 mostly in a period where I I don't ha I have any time to read for pleasure. Mm -hmm. Again, it'll be in the summer. Right. What What are some books on your list that you might pick up once you have some free time? Well, uh, I. I think there's a new book by the novelist Julian Barnes, the British novelist, that I'm interested in reading. Um, I'm, I'm also reading a lot of books, or sorry, stories, for a, um, another project that I'm doing, a, a writing fiction text where all of the, um, the model stories are actually from Asia. Uh, they're either in translation or in English. And um, so I've been reading a lot of stories that I hadn't been familiar with before that. So across lots of, I think, creative industries or creative uh, modes of thinking like writing, songwriting, uh, music careers, even visual arts, a lot of people say that a formal education is only so useful, that at the end of the day, what matters is uh, actually doing the project yourself. And that recently we've seen lots of artists be able to become popular kind of with how technology has changed the ability for us to access art mm. in a much lower barrier way. You know, you have artists on YouTube, you have artists on the internet who you can directly kind of, they become viral in a sense. Mm -hmm. Would you suggest that people still, you know, try to pursue these uh, through degrees or graduate programs? Or do you think people should spend that money and effort, you know, because there is a limited amount of it uh, through their own work primarily? Mm -hmm. Well, it really depends, again, on the individual. Um, for me, what I learned in graduate school was that uh, to, to be part of a writing community and to have a certain discipline in my writing. And also, there are some, um, well, I wouldn't call them tricks of craft, but certain elements of craft that I think it would have taken me longer to sort of stumble upon myself, that it was just e easier for me to, for, to hear from someone who is a professional of, you know, think about doing this this way. Um, I do think that for graduate school, no one should pay for it, that if you can't really get a, uh, no one should go into debt mm -hmm. for graduate school. I feel that if you can't get a fellowship, you probably shouldn't go, you know, it, because, uh, especially in the creative arts, mm -hmm. because in the creative arts, it's not, there's not a big promise of a lot of money anyway. So, you know, you're going to be saddled with extra debt. Uh, but I, I think it really depends upon your, um, your makeup. You know, how do you need that? Do you thrive in a community of, of writers or musicians or artists? Uh, I tend to be both very solitary and also very social. I love socializing and talking about literature, politics, or whatever, but then I really love uh, squirreling myself away and just doing the work. Um, there, I think it's also a matter of uh, how much you believe in yourself. Uh, if you need the approval of others, then it's probably good 
to go to a, a program too? Because I think I needed that. I needed some kind of approval of other people saying, yes, what you're doing is worthwhile. You don't always get that, of course, <laughs> at graduate school. Sometimes you get quite the opposite. But that's good too, because you learn also to be a good critic of yourself. Um, I think to be a writer or an artist of any kind, there's a certain amount of arrogance that's needed, but, and that's good, and I think it propels you, arrogance and ambition, they're not necessarily bad things. Um, they really help propel you, but I think you have to be careful that that doesn't turn into vanity, and I think that that can turn into vanity if you are if you just kind of go it alone. Then you you think, okay, well, I did this, the world revolves around me. But if you're around, I think, a lot of other young artists, um, all sort of bumping up against each other in a, creative, um, a creatively interesting way, I, I think that you learn a certain humility that's also important to be an artist. Mm. Great. Okay, so the final question. So normally we ask people, if you had to hide a physical giraffe in Singapore, where would you hide it? And it has to stay alive. And the, oh, and the government, like hide it from the government. So hide it from the government. But so you can answer that. But also, just to fit the theme of what we're discussing, if you had to hide a giraffe in a book, but no one could <laughs> say, "Wow, that's a really out of place." You know, why would the author? That was a really strange choice to include that giraffe. Would there be any book you think you could hide it in that, you know, no one would find it that suspicious? Uh, so you can you, you can try to answer both. <laughs> yeah. Well, the book one, I think. Um, I don't know. My first thought is to hide the giraffe in um, in a work of uh, maybe in the in Andre Breton's Surrealist Manifesto. <laughs> That's number one. Uh, maybe maybe in um, in Albert Camus' mm -hmm. The Stranger. Uh, you know why not put the <laughs> put the giraffe on the beach with you know uh, with the main character uh, in in Singapore. Let's see where would I hide a giraffe? I, I think that I would have to hide a giraffe. I'd probably put him um, on the roof of my condo because not a lot of people go up there, and I would just put him up there. And and <laughs> but people wouldn't look up and see a giraffe on. People don't look up. <laughs> <laughs> or I might put it in the pool uh, because even if people knew about it, they uh, there's mostly kids who go to the pool, so they so they'd find it fun anyways. Yeah, and they wouldn't tell their parents or anyone. <laughs> Oh, their parents wouldn't believe them anyways. Right, exactly. Okay. So I have a story about that, actually. Um, uh, when I was four years old in Manhattan, um, that's where I was born, um, I had this towel uh, with that uh, I used, my mom used to dry me off with after baths, and uh, it had all kinds of animals on it, uh, giraffes and you know zebras and so on. And I didn't know the word draft, um, and so uh, one time the, uh, after she was toweling me off with this towel, uh, the door was open and she said, close the door, Robin, or a giraffe will get in. And I thought she was saying a giraffe. <laughs> and I was just so, I said, no, I want to keep it open. Let the giraffe in. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Logan. Okay.